He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the Son of God. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not obey is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Because we know that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Christ, even so we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Before we open God's word together this morning, let's go ahead and ask his guidance and direction on our study of his word. Our Father, we're thankful so much that we have you to come to, that you have revealed yourself to us as we'll study today, that by the Holy Spirit you have worked through the prophets of the Old Testament, the apostles of the New Testament, and you have revealed yourself to us and guaranteed that its accuracy, its veracity, that it is without error, and that you have also overseen its preservation down through the centuries, so we can be confident and thankful that we have your word. Father, we pray that as we listen to your word, that we will submit to that which is being taught, come to understand the truth of your word, that we might not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me this morning to Ephesians chapter 3, and we will continue where we finished last time, talking about the standards of revelation. But first, we need to review a little bit and understand this context. And as I pointed out in the previous lessons, Paul starts in Ephesians 3.1 with a statement that is related to who he is and the fact that he is in the circumstances of being a prisoner in Rome. And that brings to his mind something that he knows about the Ephesian believers. And so he interrupts himself to go into a, a different direction in order to talk about what God is doing in and through him and the fact that he is in prison isn't something that they should consider to be a hindrance to God's plan, a hindrance to the ministry, but that that is indeed God's plan to continue to enhance and expand the Apostle Paul's ministry. And so what we find from verse 2 down to verse 11 is this interrupted thought, the focus of which is on the gift that God has given Paul as an apostle the mission that goes with that, and the message. And part of that message is teaching this new information, this new uh, revelation from God about what God is doing in this new man, uh, this new body, and this new temple 
called the body of Christ, the church. And so he will end in Ephesians 3.13 by coming back to where he was at the beginning. And he says, therefore, I ask that you do not lose heart, that you do not become discouraged, that you do not become distracted at my tribulations or my afflictions or my suffering uh, for you, which is your glory. And what this reminds us is that no matter what happens, no matter what detours our life appears to take, they are not necessarily detours in God's plan, for he has a plan and a purpose. And no matter what negative things may come along, no matter what suffering or difficulty, persecution or adversity we may face, that is God's plan for us, and we don't see what that end game is. But we have promises like Romans 8.28, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called, a term that refers to those who have responded to the gospel invitation to trust in Jesus Christ as Savior, to those who are the called according to his purpose. And so, as we look at this issue, I want us to open our Bibles and go to Genesis chapter 50. Turn in your Bibles and go to Genesis chapter 50, verses 15 and following. Genesis chapter 50, verses 15 and following. Now, this is a great illustration of what Paul is encouraging the believers with. In Ephesians 3, it's, the, it's an Old Testament counterpart, just one of many. But it is one of those tremendous episodes that teaches us that we have no idea what God is taking us through, why he's taking us through, where he is leading us, and what the end game is going to be. This is the story of Joseph. Now, when we think back to the story of Joseph, Joseph is one of the sons of Jacob, Joseph is the uh, second to youngest, his youngest brother, Benjamin. He and Benjamin were uh, the sons of Jacob's true love, Rachel, who died in childbirth with Benjamin. And Joseph is somewhat uh, precocious. He may even have a sense of how God is going to use them. And sometimes what happens when people have that sense, they seem to be a little arrogant. But he has a couple of dreams when he's young, and these dreams indicate that his father and his brothers all will bow down uh, to him. And so uh, they don't like that idea, and so they become very jealous of him. He's his father's favorite. His father, of course, we know the story about the coat of many colors. And so they get mad at him, and they decide to kill him. And so they dig a pit, and they throw him in the pit, and one of the brothers says, ah, oh, this isn't really a good idea. Let's, let's just sell him into slavery. So they, they thought about it and thought that was best. So they sold him to slaves, to some Ishmaelites, some Midianites that were coming through the area, and they took him to Egypt. And there they sold him as a slave, and he was bought under the unseen sovereign hand of God by an official in the court of Pharaoh by the name of, of Potiphar. Potiphar was an, called, is called an officer and an official in the court of Pharaoh. And initially, you have this young man, and he's got this new position, 
and he's in the household. He would have been the newest slave, so he, they're trying to give him orientation, understanding. He's got to learn all of the different things that are going on within the household of this extremely wealthy, powerful uh, aristocrat in the government of, of Egypt. And as he learns his responsibilities, he masters them in a magnificent way. It's so interesting to read through this story of Joseph because his talent and his skill and his ability to manage and administer affairs and to improve whatever the situation is immediately becomes clear to his whoever is over him in authority. And so we don't know how long this took, but eventually he gets promoted and promoted and promoted until he is so well trusted by Potiphar that he is placed over the entire household. When we were talking about dispensationalism and, and administration and the, the terminology of oikonomos in, in our first verse here in Ephesians uh, 3.2, that this has the idea of a steward or overseer or administrator. That's exactly what Joseph was. And so we don't know how long this time, but he reaches this trusted position where, where Potiphar trusts him so completely that he doesn't even look at the books anymore. He lets Joseph take care of everything, and year after year things go well, except Potiphar's wife gets the hots for Joseph, and she wants to seduce him, and one day she works it out, so all of the household servants are gone. Everybody else is gone. Joseph, she calls Joseph to come to her, and then she uh, baits the trap, and she wants to seduce him. And he will not break his oath of service to Potiphar. He is honest. He has great integrity. And as she grabs him, and he flees, but she gets his coat. And so when... Uh, Potiphar came home later in the day. She is so angry and vindictive toward Joseph that she tells Potiphar that he tried to rape her, that Joseph tried to rape her and uses the code as evidence that he was there. And the result is that that uh, Joseph is put into prison. So if, if you had these dreams as a young boy and that God is going to do something through you, and the first thing that happens is you're sold as a slave, uh, next things look pretty good, you get promoted over and over again, and then you get thrown in prison, and you're in prison for a while, and uh, while he was in prison, the same thing happened. The captain of the guard, who is the overseer of the prison, sees the, the, the skill, the talent, the ability of Joseph, and he gets given this responsibility and then those responsibilities, and before long, he is uh, the prisoner who is basically running the prison, again, in a trustworthy position. So all of that gives us uh, evidence of Joseph's character. And then there's two officials in the court of the Pharaoh who... Uh, do something that offends the Pharaoh. There's the, there's the butler and the baker, and they are thrown into prison. So, some, again, some time has gone by. We don't know how long. And then they both have a bad night, and they have dreams, and they just don't know what these dreams mean. And Joseph says, well, tell me the dream, and I'll tell you what it means. And so the dreams have to do with what's immediately going to happen to these two, and so he rightly interprets the dream of the butler, 
and that the butler will be called for by the by the pharaoh, and he will be taken to the court, and he will be reinstated. But that's not good news for the baker, because the baker is going to be called to the court, and he's going to lose his head, literally. So when the butler goes to court, uh, the butler has been also asked by by uh, Joseph, say, well, remember me uh, to Pharaoh and put in a good word. Well, the butler is reinstated, forgets all about Joseph, and two more years go by where Joseph is left in prison. Seems like God has forgotten him. Seems like things are chaotic and out of control. And then the Pharaoh has a dream. What's interesting is as we're talking about a similar type situation with Paul in the New Testament, how revelation plays just as much a key role in the story of Joseph as what Paul is talking about in Ephesians 3. And so there's this dream that God gives the Pharaoh, and this is, of course, the dream of the future, that there will be seven years of plenty and then seven years of famine. But he has no idea what this means because he just sees seven fat cows and then seven lean cows, and he can't sleep, and he's restless, and he calls for all the magicians and everybody to interpret it, and nobody can. And then the butler comes forward and says, you know, I just remembered. There's this guy in prison, and he interpreted a dream I had, and that's exactly what happened. And so Pharaoh calls for Joseph. We know the story. Joseph comes uh, to Pharaoh, tells him the, the uh, interpretation of the dream. And so the Pharaoh elevates Joseph now to the second highest position in the land. Now, it's taken, we don't know how many years, maybe 20 or 30 years of some pretty significant uh, suffering, adversity in Joseph's life for God to get Joseph, get him to exactly the place where he wanted him so that he could be the blessing that God intended him to be. And then we go through seven more years of of, uh, of the prosperity, the years of the fat cows, and several years of the lean cows, because now the famine's so bad in Canaan that Jacob has to send uh, some of the brothers down to Egypt to buy grain. And they do that, and you, you're familiar with the story. He comes down, they buy grain, they go back, and they bring Benjamin back with him, and all of these things happen. Eventually, God brings Jacob and all the, uh, all the Jews, there's about 75 at the time, to Egypt. And this is where God wants them to protect them uh, from assimilation into the pagan cultures around them. And Joseph is the one who makes that happen. So we see the hand of God through the whole thing, but Joseph never did until he gets towards towards the end. And then as we come to the end of the story of, of Joseph, Jacob dies. They're, they grieve. They take his body back to Hebron to bury him there in the cave of Machpelah. And then when they head back, the brothers start getting really worried. They just had this guilt conscious all along that, that they sold Joseph into slavery. And now that Jacob is gone, he's going to take his vengeance on us. And they're, they're scared to death. And so we read in Genesis chapter 50, verse 15, When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, Perhaps Joseph will hate us and may actually repay us for all the evil which we did to him. So they sent messengers to Joseph and said, Before your father died, he commanded, saying, Thus you shall say to Joseph, 
I beg you, please forgive the trespass of your brothers and their sin, for they did evil to you. Now, please forgive the trespass of the servants of the God of your father. Now, there's no indication that uh, uh, Jacob actually said that. They could have just been making that up. Knowing those brothers, they probably did. But that didn't matter to Joseph. He wept and brought them to him. I fell down before his face, and Joseph said to them in verse 19, Do not be afraid, for am I in the place of God? Am I the one you're answerable to now? And then he says, But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, in order to bring about, as it is this day, to save many people alive. That's the same point that's being made here by, by Paul is that he's in prison. It doesn't look like this is advantageous to the expansion of the gospel. And so the people back in Ephesus that heard of this are are downhearted, they're discouraged, and they're disheartened. But what Paul is telling them is, this is where God wants me. This is what's necessary for the expansion of the gospel. This is my mission. Wherever God takes me, I need to adapt to that and not get caught up with my own plans and agenda and my own ideas and I need to focus on where God's putting me because that's where he wants me to exercise my my gift and my mission and that is the point for us going back to Romans 8:28 that all things work together for good it doesn't say as so many people misunderstand it misread it that all things are good but God works them together for good to those who love God, to those who are called the called. That's every church age believer. It was Joseph in the Old Testament. It was Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, the brothers. They were all called according to God's purpose for the mission of establishing uh, the Israelite people. And so we have to think always in our minds of that end game. And so what Paul t- teaches them is that God has, as part of his mission, he has revealed to Paul and also to the other apostles this thing he calls the mystery, that by revelation he may made known to me the mystery, as I've briefly written already. And so we look at, and I paraphrase verses 3 through 5 in the bottom of the slide, because what this does is helps us check the train of thought And I've rearranged the phrases so in English it makes a little more sense. But in the Greek, it's important to keep the translation that by revelation, he made known. The first thing that's mentioned is according to revelation. That's in the front of the sentence to emphasize that what is told to Paul is according to the standards of revelation. And it's according to those standards. But... In English, we would say God made known. That's the main subject. God revealed something. God made known, and he revealed it to Paul. And what he revealed is according to the standard. That Greek preposition, kata, means according to a standard, and the standard is revelation. That is divine revelation. God made known to me according to the standard of divine revelation, the mystery. 
And that term mystery refers to previously unknown information. Now, it's a term that's taken from the pagan religions in the Greek world called mystery religions. And in those mystery religions, the secret was something that was held uh, held tight by those who were the initiates. It's like if you were a part of the Masonic Lodge or some other organization like that, you're initiated, you're told certain secrets, and you're not to tell anybody that's not in the, in the club. And so that's how it is with the mystery religions. The mystery was something that was a secret that was kept. But the mystery, as Paul redefines the term, is new revelation that is supposed to be told to everyone. That is the essence of the proclamation of the gospel and what God is doing in the church, in the church age. So the essence, boiling down what he says in these verses 3, 4, and 5. God made known to me, according to the standard of divine revelation, the mystery which was not made known to the human race. Now, that is so important because what is said sometimes and in some commentaries about this is that this is uh, this is new information. It was given. You can see hints of it in the Old Testament. That, no, there are no hints of it. That's what this is saying. There's no hints of it. There's no suggestion of this. It was kept as a tightly guarded secret within the councils of God. Nobody had a clue. There was nothing in the Old Testament that indicated that there would be this new entity following the resurrection of Christ. So it was not made known to the human race as it has only now been revealed. That's such a clear statement. It has only now been revealed by the Holy Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets. So what we learn from this is, first of all, that God made something known to Paul. God is the author of divine revelation The second thing we see, he made something known. That means it is directed to the intellect, to the mind, not to the emotions. It is not something that that, that Paul felt. It is not some sort of uh, intuitive hot flash. But it is specific information that is given to the apostle. It is given to his Mind, we can't know with any, you can't know with your physical heart, it just pumps blood. Uh, when you hear, see the word heart used in scripture, it's usually metaphorical for that which is at the center of a person, which is our soul, and what drives the soul, or what should drive the soul, is our thinking, our thought process. We can't think with our emotions, we can only respond. We can't think with anything other than our brain, the intellect that God gave us. So God gives intellectual information in that sense to Paul. He reveals something previously not known. So what was made known is called by this term mystery, something never, ever revealed before. It was God's closely guarded secret. And now it is being made known and it's to be proclaimed throughout the world. And now what Paul says is the way that it was made known was according to the standard of revelation. There are standards in the Bible to uh, qualify the giving of revelation. In Deuteronomy 13 as well as Deuteronomy 18, you have two different tests that are given of a prophet. 
And the first test is that whatever a prophet says must conform to previous revelation. It can't disagree with it. It can't change it. So when we have people who come along like Muhammad in the 7th century and claim that an angel has appeared to him and given this, this new revelation, and that revelation contradicts the revelation of the Old Testament and the revelation of the New Testament, we know it's a false revelation. You look to the 19th century, you have an almost identical scenario with Joseph Smith up in Palmyra, New York. And he goes to this uh, hill, uh, Camorra, outside of town, and there the angel Moroni appears to him and does the same kind of thing, gives him these books and these magic glasses that he can put on so he can interpret the writing there. And again, it doesn't conform to the revelation that's been given uh, in the Old Testament or New Testament. It contradicts it, so we know it's a false a false revelation. So Deuteronomy uh, 13 talks about that, and Deuteronomy 18 talks about the fact that whatever a prophet says must come true. That's what validates it, is that it will come true exactly as the prophet says. So prophets would say things about the future, some of which would take place within a short time. That's to validate their office and validate their gift and their authority so that when they gave other information that would not be fulfilled in their lifetime, you would know it was valid because it was given during, um, it was given by a, a prophet. So there's a standard for revelation, and God follows that same standard in revealing this new information to the Apostle Paul, so that he says that by means of revelation, he made known to me the mystery as I've briefly written already, which is what he's just referring back to that section in Ephesians 2, 11 to 22. So last time we started to look at what the Bible teaches about divine revelation, and we covered the key words. And I think this is important to be reminded what they mean. The word for revelation, one of the nouns, is apocalypsis, which means to reveal or to disclose. It comes from the verb meaning to reveal or disclose. So apocalypsis means revelation. So when you come to the first verse in the final book of the New Testament, that is revolution singular, I mean revelation singular, not revelations plural. It's one revelation, and it is the apocalypsis. That's where we get this term apocalyptic. But the problem with uh, the term apocalyptic is is in the uh, intervening period between the Old Testament and New Testament, there were certain things that were written that were never accepted as canonical, and they had to do with all of these uh, bizarre scenarios talking about the future and this thing happening and that thing happening, and they would be called the apocalypse of this person or that person. Same thing happens after the closing of the, of the canon in the New Testament, and there are these various... Um, things that mimic or sound somewhat similar to the prophecies of Jeremiah or Ezekiel or Daniel or, or John. And so in modern times, they have taken this as a genre, as a category, as a style of literature. They call it apocalyptic literature. And what happens, one of these subtle attacks on interpretation and on the church, is they come along and they say, see, we have this whole class of literature called apocalyptic and then they take that and they read that back into the Bible. But the biblical books of prophetic revelation, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Revelation, are not like those at all. 
And so that, that, that's an important distinction to be aware of. And you'll hear people talk about, oh, this is such an apocalyptic year. That's where they get the term, but it's picked up a, a separate meaning from that which is in the Bible. It, it, it talks about just something, uh, some great judgment that comes or great catastrophes or worldwide calamities. But the word apocalypsis just means revelation, disclosure, uh, the giving of information. It's the opposite of the words that mean to cover up or to conceal. And then the verb norizo, like we see in our passage, he made known to Paul, that word norizo is make known. He made known to Paul by revelation. So what God's revelation gives information so that something is known. Revelation discloses information which is necessary to correctly understand and interpret the events of our lives. We see this in a couple of passages like Luke 2.15 where the uh, multitude of angels that appear to the shepherds after the birth of Jesus. And uh, when the angels had announced the birth of Jesus to the shepherds, then the shepherds said, let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. See, it's information that wouldn't be discovered immediately, in this case immediately, without God disclosing it. Another key word is the word phanerao. Phanerao has to do with making something known or revealing something. Sometimes it's translated as making something manifest. It, its cognate noun is phanerosis, which means a revelation or a manifestation or a disclosure. And so we have this in Romans 16.25. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel, the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery kept secret since the world began. So here we have this word. This is the idea. It's kept secret. Nobody knew it from the time of the original creation. Now the second point that we learn is that God the Father uses God the Holy Spirit to reveal his word to the Old Testament prophets. And then in this dispensation, in the church age, it is revealed to the New Testament, and notice the word order, apostles and prophets. And that's important to have that word order because if, it were, if he was talking in these passages, the one we have in Ephesians 2.20 and then in, in this passage, if it was in the order of prophets and apostles, then the prophets would be Old Testament prophets. It would be chronological, Old Testament prophets and, uh, and the apostles for the New Testament. But it's apostles and prophets these are talking about New Testament gifts related to Revelation. There's a New Testament gift of prophecy that was similar to, but a little bit different from that in the Old Testament. Because in the Old Testament, it's, they were all related to the Mosaic Law and confronting Israel with their disobedience to the law. And so within their confrontations, they also made, uh, made statements that referred to the future. But in the New Testament era, you had prophets who wrote scripture. They weren't apostles. Probably Luke. Luke was not one of the apostles. Luke was, had the New Testament gift of, of being a prophet, as did the writer of Hebrews. 
We don't know who the writer of Hebrews was. It wasn't the Apostle Paul. It's pretty clear because of several statements he makes in the book of Hebrews that indicate that he was told about the, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul would never say that because Paul saw the resurrected Jesus Christ. So there are statements clearly in Hebrews that, that would exclude Paul from, from being the author. So there's someone, uh, Mark. Mark was closely associated with Peter, but Mark was not an apostle, but he wrote the Gospel of Mark. So there were those authors in the New Testament that had the New Testament gift of being a prophet. So the reference to uh, his holy apostles and prophets are talking about those that, that were uh, had the authorization to communicate scripture. In 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21, we read, knowing this first, that no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of, will of, God, uh, will of man, but by holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So Old Testament uh, several times attributes it to the to the uh, Holy Spirit, and so does the New Testament. Our third point is that the importance of Revelation is that this primarily, not, not exclusively, but primarily is giving information to us that we could not learn on our own, that we could not learn no matter how many books we read, no matter how well we we thought through all of the issues with the cognitive abilities that God gives us. We could never figure this out. And no matter what the experience was, we could never work it through in a laboratory. We could never come to this information. And the classic example is in the Garden of Eden. God gave uh, Adam and Eve a lot of information. They could discover a lot of things through empiricism by observing and what was going on in the garden, observing the animals so they could be named, all of those sorts of things, observing all of the trees, all the fruit. They could have figured out that they, they could eat all of this, but there's one thing they would never know unless God told them, and that was there was one tree that was different, and if you ate that fruit, you would die spiritually, not physically. It wasn't poison. It was the issue was obedience or disobedience to God, and by disobeying God, they were separated from, from the life of God. So the issue in Revelation is this gives us that information, just one little bit of information. There may be a thousand pieces of information, but there's one that when that is known, it reshapes our understanding of the other 999 pieces of information. That's why we have to always start with the Word of God. It's going to give us that one clue as to how to interpret everything else. And of all the things that you could say about Christ, about his work on the cross, about the resurrection, about the ascension, and about the activities that occurred on the day of Pentecost, never in a million years would you ever come to the conclusion that God was creating a new man, a new body, a new temple, and it would be comprised equally of Jew and Gentile where there would be no difference between them. You could never figure that out on your own. And what this reminds us is how important it is for us to know the Word so the Word of God is the foundation of everything that we think. 
Now, as we look at this principle, I want to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 2 to understand the significance and the importance of God's revelation. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9. Now, I've gone through this in detail. You can go back. This is one of the most important passages in Scripture related to, to revelation and the importance of, of Scripture. But this is, and we're just going to summarize it quickly here. Paul is reminding the Corinthian believers and telling them that uh, of the importance of knowing Scripture and that this is a spiritual process that involves the Holy Spirit as the author of, and the overseer of revelation and the one who enables us to understand God's revelation. In verse 9 we read Paul's start of his argument and he goes to Scripture. He says, but as it is written, and this is not stated in one particular place, but he's cobbled parts of this together from different verses out of Isaiah. I has not seen. Now, in in empiricism, the view is that we're born basically with an empty mind. A a tabula rasa was Aristotle's idea. It's it's an empty slate, and we, we put content on that by what we see, what we hear, what we taste, what we touch, what we smell, all of these things through empiricism, through our experience, through scientific method, we can categorize, classify everything, we categorize all the animals like Adam started to do. That is empiricism. And he says, but there are things that I has not seen that's not ever going to be available empirically, nor ear heard, again, empiricism nor have entered into the heart. Heart refers to the thinking of a man. Uh, now have entered into the thinking of man. Rationalism. That with no matter how much you pursue reason, you can't get the answers that are only available through the study of God's Word. He's not saying it's irrational. He's saying reason can only get you so far. But at some point, you have to have some key information that only God knows, that God tells you, and then the rest of it can make sense. So he says, I has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things. Now, this is, if you look in your Bible, it'll, later on, it kind of highlights, or puts this in italics. The things, he's referring to the things the content of revelation, the things which God has prepared for those who love him. So this word, things, as you go through this chapter, he repeats it four or five times, and it always refers back to that information which is given uniquely in the Bible. The things which God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed those things. See, the things prepared for those who love him, the, the, the information in Scripture. But God has revealed those things to us through his Holy Spirit. Now, a note here, the word spirit is used in about three or four different ways in this passage. And so you have to be careful. It's not capitalized. The Greeks didn't capitalize words like we do. So to distinguish between lowercase spirit, human spirit, or thinking, or wind, or breath, or the other meanings of the word pneuma, the translators capitalize it. But that they have to interpret the passage to decide where to capitalize it, and sometimes uh, they don't do it right. 
God has revealed those things to us through, and so this is the Holy Spirit. He is the superintendent of, of revelation. They're revealed through the Holy Spirit for the Holy Spirit, again, searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. Then verse 11, for what man knows the things of the man except the, and then you have a correctly translated lowercase spirit. It's not talking about the Holy Spirit. It's talking about the spirit of man. And the word pneuma can refer to the man's thinking. So the word spirit can refer to an attitude. Like somebody, you'll hear somebody use a phrase, they have a spirit of bitterness. Or they have a spirit of anger. Okay, that's just saying an attitude, a, a, a mindset. Okay, and then you have the word spirit. If you look in a, a Greek lexicon, there's about nine or ten different definitions for pneuma. And so here it's talking about the fact that, that the thinking of a man, he knows his own thoughts. For no, uh, what man knows the things of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him, his own thinking. Even so, no one knows the things of God except the Holy Spirit of God. Because the Holy Spirit is fully God. He is omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent. As omniscient, he knows everything that the Father is thinking, everything the Son is thinking. Every, all three members of the Trinity are fully aware and knowledgeable about the other two members of the Trinity. And then Paul says, but now we, we as believers, have received not the spirit of the world. So here's another usage. The thinking of the world, the, the mindset of the world, the philosophies, the religious systems of the what I call the cosmic system from the Greek word for world, meaning cosmos. Now, we have received not the spirit or the thinking of the world, and you have this contrast. So there's the world's thinking, and then we have the thinking of God, the thinking of the Holy Spirit. Human viewpoint versus divine viewpoint. But the Holy Spirit, who is from God, for the purpose of something that we might know, not that we might feel, not that we might have an experience, but that we can know cognitive action, intellectual reflection, that we might know the things. There's that word again, been used twice already. The things refers to the content of God's revelation, what's in the word of God, so that we might know the things that have been freely given to us by God. So it's very clear that we're given the Holy Spirit so that we might understand the Word of God. And that, that doesn't mean that you can just read a verse and you have it. I've had some people say, well, you have the gift of pastor teacher. You can just pick up the Bible and know what it means. Like, you're just a mystic and you're as pagan as you can be. That is not what the gifts are. It's a gift of communication and how God uses that in the lives of people is, is the gift aspect, the miraculous aspect of it. Um, so what we have here is that, that you have to study, you have to go through and learn Bible study method, you have to go through and you have to learn Greek and you have to learn Hebrew and you have to learn how to exegete and you have to spend years crafting and developing and practicing those skills and then you're going to be able to do it. But it takes time. When you come out of seminary, you've mastered some basic skills, but in four years, the average student that graduates from, da from Dallas Theological Seminary back in like the 60s or 70s didn't even come close to somebody who graduated from a seminary in the early 19th century or the 18th century. Why? Because those men had been studying Greek and Latin and Hebrew since they were in grade school. 
when they started seminary, they knew more about Greek and Latin and Hebrew than most masters of theology from any seminary in the U.S. knows at the end of four years of study, because he's just had four years of study. So it takes time, but God the Holy Spirit is the one who works in all of that so that we can come to understand the content of God's revelation. Verse 13, these things, that is the content of revelation, we also speak, meaning the apostles. We as the apostles speak, we teach it, we communicate it, not in words which human wisdom teaches. It's not human viewpoint systems of methodology. But what the Holy Spirit teaches, again, this contrast between human viewpoint and divine viewpoint, comparing spiritual concepts with spiritual words. So we learn basic things, and then we learn more, and we put those things together under the ministry of the Holy Spirit, and we continue to grow in advance. But then he says in verse 14, but the soulish, the spiritually dead man, does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. What's that? That is revelation, he does, the Word of God. He doesn't receive the things of the Spirit of God, for those things are foolishness to him, nor can he know those things because they are spiritually discerned. So this relates to having a human spirit being regenerate, being born again. They are spiritually discerned. See, if you make it the Holy Spirit, you got a problem. What's the problem? Well, what about all those people in the Old Testament that didn't have the Holy Spirit? See, that spirit, you got to think, is that going to be the human spirit, which is what you have as a possession in regeneration that now enables you to think the things of God, or is it the Holy Spirit? Well, if it's the Holy Spirit, you've got a problem, because nobody up until the day of Pentecost in 33 had the Holy Spirit to help them understand the Word. So this relates to, has to relate to the human spirit and the result of regeneration. And so he says, but he who is spiritual, that is the one who is regenerate with the knowledge of these things, evaluates all things, yet he himself is evaluated by no one. So God the Holy Spirit is necessary to really truly understand the things of God in the New Testament, but it's predicated upon the fact that he's been regenerated, and so that enables him, that get, that's what initially gives him the ability to read Scripture, and it, and it begins to mean something because he's, a, he's a regenerate. That applied to the Old Testament. That's one reason you don't have the kind of, the books of the Bible, you get into the New Testament, you get really technical language, and you get really technical doctrine. It's not written that way in the Old Testament. Old Testament is mostly stories and examples and things of that nature. And the reason is, is if you're just regenerate, you can understand that. But to get into Paul, to get into Peter, to get into the more advanced revelation of the New Testament, you've got to have the Holy Spirit. Now, the fourth point is the Old Testament testifies the Scripture was given through the Old Test through the Holy Spirit. So Zechariah seven twelve says, "Yes, they made their hearts like flint; they hardened their hearts, refusing to hear the law and the words which the Lord of Hosts had sent by His Spirit through the former prophets." So the Holy Spirit was clearly working through the through the Old Testament prophets. Second Samuel twenty three three, the God of Israel said, "The Rock of Israel spoke to me." He who rules over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. So God is the one who speaks here. He's not specifying, he's just saying the Elohim of Israel. 
He's not saying Yahweh. He's not, he's not identifying a specific person of the Trinity, but it is God who is the one who speaks and reveals. And we know from Zechariah 7.12 and 2 Peter 1, uh, 20 and 21, that this is the Holy Spirit. And so now in the New Testament, uh, new information was revealed by the Holy Spirit to those who had the New Testament gift of apostle and prophecy. So this previously unrevealed truth is expressed through the terminology of mystery. Now, we see this language in Ephesians three times. Having made known to us the mystery of his will. Us being the apostles. It's not just given to Paul. In Ephesians 6.19, he says, And for me that utterance may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. That part of the gospel in a broad sense isn't just what you need to know to get into heaven, what you need to believe to get into heaven. But once you are saved, you need to understand who you are as this new creature in Christ. That's part of the mystery, this previously unrevealed part of the gospel. And Ephesians 3.10, which we'll get to at the close of this section, to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the church. For the purpose that God's wisdom be known to a church, it's not a secret doctrine that only a few people know. It's for everyone. It is to be proclaimed to everyone. And in Colossians 1.27, we have a parallel statement. To them, God will to make known what are the riches of the glory of the mystery among the Gentiles. So God wants this known by all the Gentiles, the uniqueness of the church. And Romans 11 25, Paul says, For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery. We have to know this and study it. Lest you should be wise in your own opinion. That blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. See, the context is God's not through with Israel. But right now, because they have hardened their hearts, God is calling up a new people that will and a new entity. That's this mystery that is a combination of Jew and Gentile. Until the fullness of time comes, then he goes back to working with Israel. Romans 16:25, which we already talked about, now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery kept secret since the world began. And in uh, 1 Corinthians 2:1, and I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech are of wisdom declaring to you the mystery of God. So all through these Corinthians, Colossians, Ephesians, Paul is proclaiming the mystery. It's a mystery in Colossians 1.26 that has been hidden from the ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. In Colossians 2.2, that their hearts may be encouraged. So all of this, some people say, oh, there's just so much doctrine you teach over there. You, you get it all this exegesis, but that's what Scripture does. How else are we going to make, be known what the Scripture says so that we can be encouraged? The purpose of this is to keep us from becoming disheartened and discouraged. Uh, Colossians 4.3, Meanwhile, praying also for us that God would open to us a door for the word, to speak or to proclaim the mystery of Christ that's related to the gospel, all of the mystery doctrine. First Timothy 3.9, he says, holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. 
And in 1 Timothy 3.16, and without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. So mystery relates to godliness, to our spiritual life, our spiritual growth. In 3.9, it's the mystery of the faith. It's understanding what we believe. The mystery of the faith is the body of doctrine, the body of knowledge that has been revealed to us. And it is extremely practical because, as Paul is saying here, this is what gives us as Christians, our identity, that when things go wrong as we perceive them, when things are tough, when we face opposition, persecution, antagonism for the faith, when the culture around us collapses, we don't collapse. We don't fall apart because we know that God still has a mission and a ministry for us and that this is part of his plan and his purpose so that we can be strong, we can have courage, and we can be faithful even in the midst of cultural crisis with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come together to study your word today and to be reminded of who we are in the body of Christ, that we are part of this new man, new body, this new temple that God the Holy Spirit indwells us individually as well as corporately, and that we have this great privilege and this great purpose. You've given us a ministry like the Apostle Paul, related to our spiritual gift, related to edifying one another, encouraging and strengthening one another within the body of Christ. And that no matter what happens, we, we face our mental attitudes so much on on whether things go the way we like them to go or what we want to do. We just want to be in control instead of recognizing you're in control. Father, we pray that you would help us to relax and trust you and pursue the mission you've given us, that we might truly fulfill that, that testimony that you have given to us to be a witness to the angels and those around us of your grace and your goodness and of the power of the gospel. Father, we pray that if there's any listening, anyone watching, anyone who is here that has never trusted Christ as Savior, they, they, they may be wanting to know how can they have peace in their life, how can they have stability in their life. The way to have that truly have it, not just a semblance of it, is to become a new creature in Christ, which comes simply by trusting in Jesus and all he did at the cross to believing on him, to believing he died for our sins, to accepting that full forgiveness that we have from you, and that we now have peace. We have peace with you because of what Christ did on the cross. Because of that, we can face anything. We can handle anything. We can surmount any challenge. We get the right orientation to life and to our purpose, and that enables us to face all the challenges and vicissitudes of life. So, Father, we pray that you would strengthen us with that knowledge and that any who needs to trust in Christ would understand that that's all that's needed is to believe that Jesus died for their sins and that they have eternal life, that they trust in him and him alone. Father, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand.